Welcome to Murder Avenue. Welcome to Murder Avenue. I am Patrick Michael, and this is the true crime podcast that you all love. All 62 of you. Thank you so much for supporting the show. You guys mean the world. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Share with a friend. If this is your first time, just know we're here to have a little bit of fun while also talking about a subject that is, of course, very grim. And today we're going to be talking about a very significant person in due to the fact that, yes, this person is very evil, but they're significant because they're special amongst, uh, I guess, peasants, right? Because this is what we consider a female serial killer. Now, we've talked about killers of all different sorts. We've talked about murders of all different sorts. But one thing that we can say is that when it comes to most of these people, it's a guy. If it's not Eileen Warnos, if it's not Madame Bathory, or I don't know, I got, I, got, I really got no more. What uh, <laughs> the lady that they made that Christina Ricci played in the movie? Uh, what's her name? I can't. Bloody Mary. I don't know. Um, outside of them, this is a I, bizarre. Of course it's bizarre. It involves murder, but this is a woman that killed. And that is more significant. That's more special. Because we we can talk about guys until our, our mouths are tired. But a female that took lives doesn't happen very often. And another thing about killers in general is we can usually find one thing or a, a couple things that identifies them as creepy or weird, or could possibly be a killer. And if you see the subject today, and you know what she looks like, you would, uh, you could assume not good person, might be a witch. And I think we all grew up in specific neighborhoods where there was that one house, there was that one house that featured a, a creature of some kind that came out every now and again, did some grocery shopping, but other than that, you didn't really see them, and they were terrifying. We all had that. We all had that neighborhood weirdo. And this lady certainly seems like that type, okay? They certainly, she she looks the type where you would be afraid to trick-or-treat her house. But also she has up great Halloween decorations. <laughs> it's a bizarre twist. And like I said, I feel like we've all been a part of that. And today we're talking about Amelia Dyer, also known as... Ogress of Reading, Ogress of Reading, I would imagine Ogress sounds more 
you know, it's like a Shrek, a female Shrek, an ogress, <laughs> the ogress of Reading, the baby farmer, also the angel maker. And like I said, terrifying looking lady. This is somebody that you, you know, you might be like starving, a homeless person, super, super frail. You know, you got no weight. You haven't ate in two weeks. And this is the one person that comes walking down a snow covered street. You wouldn't ask her for anything. She could have a whole basket of bread because that's how people traveled with bread back then in a basket. She could be walking with an entire basket of snow-covered bread in the snow-covered street near near you, the snow-covered homeless man, and you wouldn't ask her for anything. Okay? You just wouldn't. You would see her face and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, even if she gave it to me, she'd like, she would drop it on the ground first or spit in it. There would be something extra. She wouldn't just give you a piece of bread and be like, oh, I did my good deed for the day. She does not have that face. And I'll tell you what. The funnest thing for me when it comes to these horrible people is seeing them and looking at their pictures, looking at their videos, listening to them speak, and, and having this weird conclusion in my mind that like there is something. There is one thing about them. Because there's an, a constant argument of, oh, you know, Dennis Rader was such a normal guy. John Wayne Gacy was a pillar of the community. And you're like, nah, man, he's fucking weird. There's, there's a thing. There's definitely a thing. And sometimes said person's thing is very easy to see where somebody like me or one of you guys that are listening, where you would see this person and be like, yeah, no, fuck that guy. I'm not, what? I'm never speaking to that person ever. I wouldn't risk it because you, you would, you know, that eventually you're going to have to uh, defend yourself against this lady. And that's weird. It's, I don't know. How do you do that? Amelia Dyer's story begins in Victorian Britain. The rapid industrialization during the 19th century led to an influx of people to cities. So lots of people, large population, at, at a rapid rate. The cities were cramped. They were smog-ridden, hell holes, packed to the brim with poor, suffering people. Accommodation was expensive, food was expensive, and just being alive cost more than most people made. Anyone that couldn't pay their debts was sent to the workhouses, including children. But some human instincts cannot be quelled. In these dirty, cramped conditions, babies became impossible. Babies became an impossible expense. They gave rise to an industry known as baby farming. People offered to take in unwanted children, raising the babies into adulthood, but at a price. The farmers of these children required money, demanded it. This was a time before adoption laws and government-run orphanages. For many parents, it was the only option. But once the baby was handed over, in addition to a lump sum, it was no longer a commodity. For the baby farmer, the infant was an expense. The sooner it died, the more profitable it became. For some... It was profitable to take in as many unwanted. For some, it was profitable to take in as many unwanted babies as possible and then murder the child before it became a drain on their expenses. Of these murderous baby farmers, the most notorious was Amelia Dyer. By the time she was hung, newspapers reasoned that she had killed 400 
babies. Now, as I said, when you look at this lady, you automatically, your first thought is, oh, evil person, that's a witch. I would certainly not give her anything, let alone children, and I want nothing from her. But yet in these times, I feel like most people had a grimace on their face. They weren't stoked to be there. Amelia Elizabeth Hobley was born in 1836 in Pyle Marsh, which is just east of Bristol, one of Victorian England's fastest growing cities. Within 30 years, the city in the southwest of England would be furnished with one of the world's first suspension bridges, marking how far it had came from its rural roots. Amelia was the youngest of five children and her father was a shoemaker. Unlike many children at the time, she received a good education. She even developed a passion for poetry and literature, but all was not well in the household. Typhus left her mother with a string of psychological afflictions. Typhus is a vicious disease, a bacterial infection spread by lice. What begins as a little rash soon consumes the whole body. Typhus can cause a victim to become sensitive to light and cause him to fall into a coma or cause delirium. Even today, there's no vaccine, but the effects of the Victorian era were much more pronounced. Amelia's mother was prone to bouts of raving madness a condition so bad that Amelia became her full-time nurse. As emotionally scarring as it must have been, her mother succumbed to violent delirium and fits, Amelia studied her mother's descent into madness. As well as her mother's typhus, Amelia's older sister died at the age of just six years old. So many of the things that we try to, you know, help build the foundation of what, what could possibly push this person to become a killer it's so weird to see that she's taking care of her mother. She, I mean, obviously the forced responsibility does suck. The lack of having an actual childhood takes away from that. Uh, but, I, I mean, many kids don't have childhoods. It doesn't mean that they end up becoming killers. But add that to, you know, if, there, if we have a bag sitting over here and we're adding things that could, if you shake it together and dump it out, it could make a killer. Well, we might as well throw that in there amongst what else we're going to find out. Now, having that responsibility, the lack of childhood, throwing that in there, uh, the sister that dies at six years old, we can throw that in there because that's emotional and, and uh, you know, dealing with, with death at such an early age. And then also she had a, a baby sister that died as well. She was only alive for a few months. So you could say that it's understandable that Amelia would want to escape her home. And following her mother's death in 1848, she went to live with an aunt in the Bristol city center. Um, it was perhaps the most serene period of Amelia's life. She became the apprentice of a corset maker. And that's that thing that, I don't know, I don't even understand what it was. Like, what was the point to it? The thing that squeezed women, <laughs> you know, squeezed them together real hard. It's a, I don't even know what it was. It was like, oh, we need a bra, but this is as close as we got. Uh, her father died also in 1859. She had a small lodging of her own and a career. It was around this time she met a man named George Thomas. Amelia was only 24 and George was 59. So, hey, they're both adults and this is a long time ago. And there's a good chance that George might have thought that she was, I don't know, 17. He's like, oh, you're 24? Well, this is fine, you know. Uh, 
The two began a passionate affair and were married shortly after. Now, to avoid a scandal, they lied about their age. George reduced his age by 11 years, and Amelia increased, increased hers by 6. So people still, even back then, said that there was a stigma to this large of an age gap. But the uh, pair did move in together, and Amelia changed careers. She trained as a nurse, perhaps inspired from taking care of her mother. Uh, she discovered the profitable nature of baby farming, an industry which existed in the murky gray area, unbound by laws or morals. The Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834 had eliminated any financial obligation fathers might have to support their illicit children. This left everything to the mother, often scared young women who couldn't face the shame of having a child out of wedlock, nor the costs of raising a child. Amelia Dyer offered these women a way out. For an upfront fee, or even an ongoing payment plan, Amelia promised that their babies were going to a loving, caring home. And with a nickname like Angel Maker, I don't think that's because she was turning these kids into nice adults, raising them. She was not doing that at all. In fact, as unfortunate as it is, there is correspondence between Amelia and the mothers where Amelia describes herself as an unfortunate woman unable to mother. Okay? Now, she presented herself as innocent. She offered to adopt or foster babies to fill the hole in her broken heart. It was a story that convinced many hundreds of mothers. In situations like these, Amelia could receive as much as $80 per baby, which is a sizable sum, the shame would keep most women from checking back with, with Amelia, but they didn't know that it would be too late regardless. One day, they would return to claim their children. Now, after the death of her husband in 1869, learning about a profitable nature, the profitable nature of baby farming, and after giving birth to a daughter of her own, Amelia found herself without a husband, without an income, and with two mouths to feed. She needed to make baby farming more profitable. She began to advertise. She spread the word. Hey, look what I do. She put listings in local news agents. She took out ads in various newspapers. She presented herself as the perfect person, a distraught young woman that you could trust with their unwanted baby. And business started booming. There isn't much to know about Amelia's specific actions during these years. She dropped under the radar, moving often and refining her art. But we do know how baby farms at the time operated. Few would ever come close to Amelia's violent delights. It was not uncommon for babies to be starved, drugged, or abandoned. And money not spent on baby food, diapers, or clothing was profit. A dead baby was often more profitable than a living one. And to prevent babies from crying, a baby farmer would feed them alcohol or opium. One side effect of drugging the babies was that it reduced the hunger and stopped them from crying as they starved. It was a mix of syrup and opium that could be fed to babies. A number of babies died from overdoses. This is fucking grim. 
A starved baby whose emaciated body would be nothing but skin and bones would also be easy to present to a coroner. On inspection, the coroner might write down the cause as debility resulting from birth or an insufficient amount of breast milk. Very rarely would they actually acknowledge that the babies were purposefully being starved to death. The death certificate could be shown to the mothers who did come calling hoping to reconnect with their babies, but most were too ashamed to ever return. The baby farmers took the money once the babies were dead. They might also sell the clothing or the toys. Profit was profit. Anything to make a dollar. Social classes were a big deal back then, folks. And if you weren't wearing the nicest looking old dress or hat, I mean, because can we be honest, even the nicest stuff looked dusty in this time. Indeed, when one of Amelia's daughters asked her mother about all the babies appearing in the house, Amelia told her about the angels. I'm sending them to Jesus, she explained. He wants to see them more than their mothers do. I'm the angel maker, she told her daughter. Like, you're batshit is what you are. What in the f what? In 1872, Amelia married again to a laborer from Bristol. They had two children. And during this marriage, Amelia seemed to curb her more ruthless business practices. But eventually, she left him, which obviously means she's going to need money. She's got mouths to feed. She's got more kids now. While her husbands may never have seen her more murderous practices, her daughters would see her descent into evil. Polly would become as much as an accomplice as a daughter doing nothing to stop her mother's murders. Now, this may have been due to the grief of the dead husbands or the lingering scars of the mother's illness. Or she may just have been evil. Rather than just neglecting babies and allowing them to die under her care, she soon began to murder the children with no remorse. But with so many strange deaths and the smell of rotting corpses emanating from her dwellings, people started to become very suspicious. After a short investigation, they arrested Amelia Dyer. They didn't convict her of murder, nor manslaughter. Amelia Dyer was found guilty of neglect, where she was punished with six months of hard labor. It might have seemed like Amelia escaped lightly, but the experience shattered her. She tried to commit suicide on multiple occasions. But eventually she was released, and it didn't take long for Amelia to resume her career. Plagued by mental instability, her mind crushed by the hard labor, she spent time in numerous insane asylums. As a former nurse, Amelia knew how to make the most of her mental condition, exacerbating her demons and making sure to stay on the good side of the staff. Compared to hard labor, life in the asylum was relatively comfortable. But around this time, she became dependent on drugs and alcohol. She became addicted to opium-based concoctions that she gave to the starving babies. During one of her suicide attempts, she tried to kill herself by drinking two bottles of laudanum. Laudanum? I don't know. Uh, but her body had built up such a monstrous uh, tolerance that she survived. Many occasions, she was almost caught. 
One time after taking in a child of the govern of a governess, which is obviously somebody of high power, the mother did return thinking she was going to visit her child. But something about the old woman had seemed strange to her. Amelia presented the child for examination, only for the governess to rip away the clothes and reveal bare skin where there should have been should have been a birthmark. It was a different boy. So she tr she tried to show what she tried to show a mother a different kid. She was like, yeah, there's no birthmark. This isn't my son. And that's because, in all likelihood, her kid was probably dead. But before the governess could actually alert the authorities, Amelia vanished into the Victorian insane asylums once more. After being released, she moved to another area and began all over again. And at this point, Amelia decided that the coroners were the biggest threat to her murderous career. So she was, she's thinking that the people that see what happens after the bodies are discovered are the ones that's going to stop her. So what's the plan? Having to seek out the death certificates for so many children would open her up to too much scrutiny. So she began to dispose of the bodies herself. No more doctors would ask questions, no more police officers would poke around, and no mothers would turn up on her doorstep. She could move on to the next town with her daughters, ready to start again under a different name. Eventually, she found herself in Reading, a town to the west of London. At the time, a young woman named of Evelina Marmon found herself in a difficult situation. She was a barmaid, and at 25 years old, she'd given birth to an illegitimate child who she loved very much. But one of the patrons in her bar got her pregnant. Without the funds to raise the child, and with the father wanting nothing to do with it, she needed help. So she posted a newspaper advert asking for a respectable woman who could help her. As it happened, there was another ad in the same paper. Married couple, it read, with no family. The advert offered to adopt a healthy child into a nice country home. The terms listed seemed reasonable. Ten euro. She received a response quickly from the prospective adoptive mother admitting that, although they were plain homely people, the child would provide company and home comfort. Evelina had reservations. She didn't want to pay up front. But the woman behind the advert insisted. Ten dollars, ten euro up front. I don't know how much that actually is, but it is an amount. Uh, somehow Evelina got the money together, and a week later she traveled by train to deliver the baby. When she arrived at the train station, Evelina was slightly taken aback by the woman who, as I said, looks terrifying. She's scary. The woman was older. Her body hidden beneath a long, flowing cape. It only made her look even more terrifying. But when the woman took the baby, it began to coo and make affectionate noises. So Evelina relaxed. As well as the baby in the shawl, she handed over a plain cardboard box containing everything she'd been able to muster together. Diapers, clothes, powder box, the $10. Evelina wept as her train pulled away. The swirling steam swallowed her baby whole as the train departed. Within a few days, she received a letter from the old woman assuring her that everything was well with the child. 
and Evelina wrote back immediately hoping that she might begin a correspondence. She never received a reply. Amelia Dyer had lied to Evelina. Rather than taking baby Doris back to reading, as she suggested, she traveled back to London, taking the child and its possessions back to the small flat in Mayo Road in Willesden. There, her daughter Polly lived with her, now 23 years old and all grown up. And as we said, Polly's the one that was helping, to a certain degree. Amelia wasted no time. She walked straight to a work basket where she kept thread, thimbles, and other sewing implements. She fished out a small roll of edging tape that was white and almost a foot long, just long enough to wrap twice tightly around the baby's neck. Amelia pulled the tape tight, pinching both ends and tying them to a firm knot. As the baby choked, her weak limbs struggling and clawing at the empty air, Amelia left her alone. Next, Amelia and her daughter took the baby's body and wrapped it in a cloth. Together, they searched through the box of possessions for anything they could sell. And the 10 euro Amelia had received from Evelina went straight to the landlord to pay for rent. At the same time, Amelia handed over a little pair of boots for the landlord's little girl, she said, as a gift. Ah, that's so dark. So fucking dark, guys. I'm so... I, I honestly wasn't really expecting this episode to be as dark as it is. But this is, uh, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, Amelia... I mean, it's still horrible, I'm just saying. 100 years ago, she was certainly not the only person doing this. They had a title for what these people did. Now, at some point, Amelia comes back with another baby, a uh, young baby named Harry, just under one years old, and she didn't have any more tape, so she just used the same tape from the other baby. And the two, the two babies were put into a, a bag and thrown into the river, but they were eventually found by, you know, a guy that definitely wasn't looking to find them he found a bag as he was making his way up the Thames passing through reading and spotted a brown parcel it was caught in the shallows of the water near the riverbank and he said hey that could be anything but when he opened it a tiny human foot fell out and it was a little girl and what was weird is inside the package there was a handwritten note or a note, it was it was handwriting, but uh, it wasn't a note. It just had a name and an address, which the police burst into this home. They burst into a home and reading, thinking they're going to find whoever did this, but the place was empty, and they didn't find anybody in the, in the flat, but they did find the sewing basket, and they did find a reel of the white tape that matched the tape on the, the neck of the babies. Uh, the police's calculation was at least 20 babies have passed through that home in the last few months. Um, eventually, they do find the baby Doris, Evelina's child. They call her, and this is only 11 days after she pa uh, had given the child to the old woman. Uh, they finally raided another home where they found more white tape, and Dyer herself later told police that the white tape around the neck of a dead baby was how you could tell it was one of hers. And the trial went on to cause a scandal, as you would think. 
Now, Amelia's daughter, who was also arrested, was never convicted, and the reasons why she was never jailed, uh, nobody knows. Amelia herself wrote letters taking full blame for the murders, but she was only tried for one murder, baby Doris, Evelina's child. Now, despite Amelia's attempts to plead insanity, the prosecutors argued that the frequent displays of madness were only attempts to escape conviction. The jury took less than five minutes to convict Amelia Dyer. She was hanged on the 10th of June, 1886, at precisely 9 a.m. I mean, I want to scream, yay, right there. Like, what a fucking, what a horrible, horrible, horrible person. Um, the government tried to clamp down on the practice of baby farming after widespread public disgust. Yeah, I'd think so. Two years after the death of Amelia Dyer, an inspection of railway carriages in Plymouth revealed a parcel wrapped in brown paper and tied together with a string. Inside, a little girl. This time, the baby was alive. After a long search, the girl was found to be the daughter of Jane Hill. She was a widow who had paid a woman called Miss Stewart to raise the child for the sum of 12 euro. Miss Stewart had promised that the baby would have a good home and parents love and care. Then Miss Stewart had dumped the baby on the next train and left with the money. Though it was never confirmed, the authorities strongly suspected that they knew exactly who Miss Stewart was. Polly, Amelia Dyer's daughter. Try as they might, the evil that was Amelia Dyer lived on. So her daughter was essentially carrying on doing the same thing. Like, what the hell? But she was she didn't kill the kid. She was just like, well, I'm just going to leave it. I'll take the money and leave the kid here and goodbye. So crazy. And this was a common thing, it sounds like. Like, she was just a part of a, uh, a bunch of other people. I mean, maybe she was the only one that was killing kids, but baby farming was a thing. People would take in kids, and they'd have, you know, a ranch-style home with a large property and 35 kids with four of them being their own. But that is a bizarre, bizarre story. And I should have warned you guys ahead of time that this was going to be really grim, because it was. And like I said, from the very beginning, she looks evil as shit. She looks evil. And young young moms were still so confident that she was going to be... I mean, she had to be convincing to a certain degree. But then when you see her, much like Evelina felt, um, she's, uh, yeah, evil-looking. But then she was, she was confused by the fact that her kid was, like, cooing and felt comfortable with this person. But that's Amelia Dyer. The baby farmer.